Welcome to this episode of the Atlantic Career Journey Podcast. Today's guest is Jed Fearon, who is a Director of Content Marketing at Provident. I met Jed when I was working with the International Olympic Committee, and his company sold us some managed IT services to help run our online applications. At the time, he really understood the value of sales partnership with his customers, and that was a big reason why we're still friends today. He's smart, driven, creative, and he's always willing to experiment with solutions to address customer challenges. Plus, he's a great musician and a human being as well. So welcome to the podcast, Jed. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, fresh title that I wanted to make sure I included in this one. So congrats. I know you're uh, you're always looking to do more and, um, you know, hope your company get get better. But I want to kind of maybe start with the beginning and, and uh, hear about where you grew up and a little bit about your background. Sounds good. Well, I was born in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. When I was four, I moved to Greenwich, Connecticut for about a year. Then I moved down to Jacksonville, Florida until 79. In the summer of 79, I came back to Greenwich, Connecticut, where I stayed until I graduated from the Brunswick School and ended up going to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. All right. So you're in high school, were you... um... Were you good at certain subjects? Did you uh, did you play in the bands? Were you in sports? Tell me a little bit about what you did there. Yeah, so around, and this is early, I started playing drums in 1977 when I was in, in fifth grade. Mm-hmm. And that's where I became less interested in baseball and, and football and soccer. I enjoyed surfing and I still surf to this day when I'm, when I'm near the beach. In fact, in a month, I'm going to uh, Witches Rock Surf Camp in Tamarindo, Costa Rica. But I was mainly a, um, a drummer, a, a surfer, and I got into weight training back in those days. And those yeah. are the three things that I did. I mean, I wasn't a bodybuilder per se, you know, I guess by the time I graduated high school, I was six one and 170 pounds. So not really in with a thin frame. So not, I was never going to be a bodybuilder, but th- those are the main things that I did. But you seemed like you were always interested in nutrition and healthy living and, and uh, how, how to get better and improve that. Did, yeah, uh, that really, you know, set the stage, you know, um, you know, get, getting in shape. And I, and I took drum lessons from this great teacher named Ken Ross, who, who played uh, in, in Broadway shows and played with a bunch of uh, obscure jazz musicians that only people that love jazz would know about. But that definitely set the stage. And getting into UNC Chapel Hill out of state was one of the highlights of my youth. Yeah, that's a really tough school to get into. Uh, great reputation. Were you thinking about playing music professionally? No, you know, around my junior year, I um, thought, like, in the very least, you know, I have, uh, you know, great proficiency with, you know, voca- vocabulary and, and English. I love, you know, novels and, and writing essays. So I think I'll probably be, you know, an English major in college, but I'd also been exposed in Greenwich, Connecticut to a lot of really successful executives. I dated a girl in high school whose dad was the CEO of Warren Taylor, 
And I remember all the great movies we saw back then. <laughs> trading places had the, the Duke brothers, you know, the commodity traders. Yep. And not that Wall Street would have pumped anybody up, you know, to be like, you know, Gordon Gecko. I actually went to school with, with Ivan Bosky's kids. Oh, wow. Yeah, but I wasn't interested in, in finance per se. But I think in before I went to college, I thought, you know, I want to, to run the company. I want to be like one of these CEO boss men, you know, the guy that I know, my girlfriend's father, and then some of these people you know, that I see in the movies. Mm -hmm. So were you, um, when you got accepted to UNC, was there, tell me about the thought process. When you sounded like you wanted to go to school out of state, um, how did you pick UNC? What were, what were some of the compelling reasons for you to select them? Well, UNC Chapel Hill was the best school that I got into. I got into USC. I got into the University of Richmond. I got into Boston University. The only one I didn't get into was UVA. But my dad and uncle had gone to UNC. And um, I knew some other people that were going there. And I, I guess they were throwing around the term that it's like a public Ivy League school. Mm -hmm. So I thought, let's go. And I also knew that after the first semester, since my dad lived there, that and he was going to pay for college, that I'd get in-state tuition. So it was a really good deal. So that was, you know, that, that was an easy decision. I think it would have been really fun to go to, to USC. But that would have, I would imagine back then, if I'm thinking about the, that probably would have been 15 thousand dollars a year even back then yeah and uh, i didn't know anyone you know in that area and i'm so glad that i went to to usc so what uh, so you you move away um you know chapel hill is you know part of that uh triangle park it's a really cool place to go to school um you said you majored in english is that where you started with or did you uh wind up yeah there? i mean um i, sh I should have mentioned this before i think i got really interested in high school with English is because I did better on the, the SAT in English than I did in math. Mm -hmm. And then and ditto on the achievement. And some of my teachers really encouraged me. And so I thought, you know, that's something I want to do no, no matter what you do in business. You know, there's a lot of people that have done great in business that were either history or English majors. So, you know, really master communications. And I got encouragement at UNC. I was really lucky to find the community of a fraternity. I was a deep Delta Kappa Epsilon. Mm -hmm. I didn't go to school, you know, thinking that I would join a fraternity. I think I had a negative view of fraternities from Animal House. Yeah. Speaking of my movie influence life. But yeah. when I went there, there were some people from Jacksonville, Florida, that were going through rush and everybody was really nice and they were a lot like me and you know similar sense of humor you know professional goals i mean in the 80s i don't know if they do it as much these days because i don't hang out with college kids but people would talk about their careers and you know would reference movies and you know people that they'd heard about i guess you were starting to hear about like t boone pickens mm -hmm. and, and some of the the, the guys certainly like Ivan Bosky and, you know, you hear references to this guy in New York, this real estate mogul named Donald Trump. You, know, you just heard about all these big figures. 
back mm-hmm. then. I guess that's when Trump had the art of the deal. And so there was a lot of talk in our fraternity, probably a little bit more materialistic talking than I would be comfortable with today. Yeah. But it was part of the conversation. And, you know, everybody's in their Brooks brothers and, you know, has, I had the Volkswagen diesel rabbit, but I was probably the only one in my fraternity that didn't have, you know, a Mercedes or a BMW, but it was very much, you know, smack in the middle of the 80s, you know, the, the Reagan era where people wanted to be in business and they wanted to be in big. Yeah, I think you hit it right there is that, you know, the, the Reagan era, you know, coming out of the late 70s and high inflation, you know, the market started to pick up. There is a lot of um, just a lot of momentum around making money. And I think, you know, I was at Georgia Tech at the time and it was the same thing. You know, you come into college to come out with a with a good job and make the most money that you can. And that was sort of the, you know, the I think the accepted um, behavior and, and um, just thought process that, you know, there wasn't a lot of just I'm um, just improving myself and wherever I land, I land. It was it seemed to be a little bit more materialistically driven. I think it's very different now. My kids are, they're on a different plane in terms of um, certainly work-life balance, but also what's important and right. what impact they can make into the world. And I think for us, it was sort of like, I want, I'm ready to be a cog in the machine. As long as they pay me, I'll go to work wherever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, UNC, um, they, uh, They've they've got a pretty good, um, like I said, a good reputation. Just in education in general. Was there was there English department? Were you thinking, um, you know, graduate school after that? Were you thinking I uh, was want to be a professor or because I I know for some folks and and you and I, you mentioned earlier just about you know everything you do you have to write and you know English is a great you know foundation you know for that and because I know at the time I'm thinking I, I went to an engineering school I'm like. You know, if I have a liberal arts degree, I don't know what I do with that. You know, do I go and be a high school teacher? Um, because there wasn't, you know, without the internet, you know, everybody types, everybody's got email. But back in the day, I don't think it was as obvious of what you could do with that degree unless it was a springboard into something else. When you were in college, were you kind of weighing through some of those things? Or tell me about your thought process. Yeah, so writing papers in college and being interested in... And, and entertainment and, and, and always thinking commercials were pretty funny. Mm-hmm. That got me interested in advertising. Okay. And so I ended up taking a couple of advertising classes. And when I, when I graduated, I didn't know for sure where in advertising, you know, I would fit. Like I had some friends that went the copywriter, you know, art director, route and I wasn't you know an art director you know type per se but mm-hmm. I got more interested in account management which you know there's a lot of sales that are involved in account management I looked at the media side but I mentioned earlier that my SATs and my achievements weren't great you know on, on the math side of things so being a number cruncher in the media department wasn't really an option. Yeah, I, I went from thinking I'm going to run some company to, hey, so I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll maybe go work at an ad agency when I get out of school. And that's exactly what I ended up doing a couple years later. And there's a few other steps in between, but that was a big shift. You know, talking to people and learning more about business to go on and write books. I talk about CEO. I don't know if I could 
handle all those moving parts and yeah i'm really not greedy no offense you know i'm really not greedy like a lot of these people in my fraternity and i i started you know changing a little bit and developing a spiritual side you know i grew up in a secular episcopalian high school but by the spring of 86 you know i i became a christian so that kind of changed my outlook a lot and i just wanted to do something where i'd be happy and you know i'd be able to make a, a good living and you know support a family and i think that's probably around the time maybe a year later that ivan boski got into all that trouble for insider trading so mm -hmm. towards the end of the 80s and certainly i guess when we had that market crash in 87 yeah you know, people started thinking maybe, I mean, the 80s, like, there was a change of heart for a lot of people at the at the end of the 80s, you know, and so I got out in 88. And, you know, my parents, my mom was still in Connecticut, you know, that that was my, my home base. And that's where I went the summer of 88. I went out to California for a little vacation, but I'd been networking, which I know we want to encourage the youngsters listening to this podcast to do. Mm -hmm. But I talked to a number of my friends at ad agencies, even at insurance companies. I talked to somebody at Chubb, copier companies, you know, the door-to-door -door aggressive copier salespeople. Yeah. And the long distance business was still was still very viable. And so there was companies that would provide you know, cost savings, you know, Sprint was the big competitor to, to AT&T and maybe some of the other, you know, robots yeah. whose names escaping. Well, I remember they had calling cards too. So, you know, for, for the, this older generation that we're in, you know, you could, you know, you had a home phone and you could select your, your long distance service, but you could oh, also yeah. buy a card. And instead of like, instead, cause you know, to call from, you know, here to LA, it costs money. It's not like everything's included in unlimited. And there were these calling cards from these little startup companies where you just dial a number and you put a key in and then you save, you know, dollar per minute, you know, cheaper than what you would get through AT&T or MCI or Sprint or whatever. Yeah, that's hey, thanks for reminding me of that. I completely forgot about that. But, you know, one, one thing that I want your um, listeners to, uh, you know, latch on to is I would, when I got out of school or even before, even before I went to California, like in May of 88, I called, you know, friends, parents, you know, hey, can I call your dad? And they had me over for coffee or we met for lunch and then they had me talking to other people. So while I had the general idea that I wanted to get into advertising, I mean, I talked to the paper company, West Baco, of course, I didn't know what I was talking about. So that interview did not go very far, <laughs> but I ended up getting a job in advertising, trade hours, trade advertising sales, because a friend of mine from UNC, still a dear friend of the state, Amy Fulton, was working at Fairchild Publications. She got me my first job just by introducing me to somebody that was hiring for a position. Yeah. So yeah. networking, who do you know from school or who do you know from the, the neighborhood, you know, plot point, you know, cannot be emphasized enough. Yeah. It's such a powerful tool to be able to, um, 
to find opportunities that normally don't exist or they're, they're obvious, but there's thousands of people trying for those. Did you do any interns, internships while you were in college? Oh, you know, that's completely forgot about that. So my, um, my college, uh, my high school girlfriend's dad got me um, a job at Lord and Taylor the uh, summer of 85, the summer of 86, somebody I met at my health club in Greenwich, you know, that's when I was really into the weightlifting, got me a job, a guy named Bob Pons. You look him up, P-O-N-S, Robert Pons, done really well. But he started off at Sprint or MCI back in the day. I think he started off at MCI in the late 70s and then went to Sprint and he's done a bunch of good stuff. He got me a job at MCI when he was still there. And it was working in Purchase, New York, which is only like 15 minutes away from my mom's place in Greenwich. And so those are the two, the two places I worked right out of high school. I think I took that summer off and just had fun. Mm-hmm. And then when I graduated, I um, I went... Um, you know, out to California before I officially began my, all right, get a job in, in, in the fall of 88, hopefully. I ended up getting my first job by, it started, I think, January 18th, 1989. I did mention I had a pretty good memory, right? <laughs> yeah, that's impressive. So, yeah, because I know sometimes internships will also lead to that. And I know in in the the agency field, because I, I do remember a little bit about this, that where you, a lot of times you had to do an internship and some of those were even unpaid, but you were trading off that experience to be able to to leverage that into the job market that, you know, you had a leg up from somebody else that just, they'd worked at, you know, grocery store or uh, oh, right. record store or whatever. And then all of a sudden, hey, I graduated, got the sheet of paper now that says I'm a graduate. Uh, now I need a job. And they're like, well, who are you? What have you done? You know, so there's there's a lot of lot of power in the internships. I know that still is the case today, especially in the um, the consulting world. That uh, a lot of companies will bring you know interns on board during the school year, and then that parlays into a job when they get out. So your first job out of school um, was an agency. Tell me a little what you did. Yeah, well, not exactly an agency, but we called on agencies. There's a, a trade magazine. It's still around today. It's called Home Furnishings Daily, and okay. it's it's red. I'm sure it's all online now, like everything else. But it was a tabloid size uh, size publication that had everything from tabletop to to textile, so all kinds of different gifts and and furniture. And the major retail buyers from every kind of you know retail entity out there would use that to you know to get trends, merchandising ideas, and to source product. And so I worked in, I worked under a guy there. I believe I remember his name. A guy named, you know, Bob Friedman, who I think I may have talked to twice. And he was a big mucky muck, just making a ton of money. And they wanted to start this smaller advertising section. He sold the large display ads, you know, and, you know, year long agreements you know, very expensive single page or double page spreads. I mean, he was a, I'm sure he was making, you know, even back then in the 300,000, you know, a year zone, but he didn't want anybody else trying to to sell under him. So 
while I was working for him, technically, I didn't get any, you know, mentoring from him. And basically, they gave me a phone and a few competitor magazines and said, you know, make cold calls to sell ad space. And it was not comfortable. It was no a, training either, right? Just like baptism not, by fire, not, right? None. I didn't know any. I mean, I knew, you know, you know what you know from school. Yeah. But you don't really know how well it applies till you try to apply it. And I was not successfully applying it. You know, I did end up making some sales and even um, offered to, to, to be the model for these home text, you know, some company that sold towels to, to, to get them to advertise. They never advertised. Mm-hmm. But somebody there took notice of my efforts and knew that this Bob guy you know, wasn't really wanting to grow the department. And they said, look, we have something that's a sister publication that's smaller but you'll be working with a team and they really need somebody, you know, with your skill set. Cause I mean, I was, I was working hard and doing everything that they pretty much told me to do, but they could tell I was industrious. And so they had something called home fashions and they had something called entree, which were specialty magazines, that maybe catered to smaller. Well, they got, they got deeper into tabletop and maybe, maybe deeper into textiles. And had a slightly different spin than the general home furnishings daily, which had a bunch of different, it was like a horizontal publication. Mm-hmm. And those two um, entree and home fashions were more vertical. And so I worked for this guy named Kevin Castellani and a woman named Monica Gerard Sharp and sold quite a bit for those publications. And that went, you know, pretty well. That was I had that job for about uh, a year and then they folded one of the magazines and my experience there caught the attention of this veteran named Bob Chiera at a family company that was only a few blocks away called Geyer McAllister Publications and they had a, a, a flagship magazine called Gifts and Decorative Accessories. So all the work at Entree was transferable over there. So I was doing ad sales for gifts and decorative accessories, working closely under a really great mentor, this Bob Chiera guy, mm-hmm. who's no longer on this earth, unfortunately, but very funny and creative and good with people, outrageous. Some of the stuff that he said in the office, you know, there's no way you could say it in this day and age without mm. going to jail. But that's where I worked until I ended up getting my MBA a couple of years later. Did you, um, was it the culture and just the funness of the job that, that uh, you know, kept you there and engaged? Or was it just kind of the selling, um, I guess, uh, activity itself? Or what did you like most about those jobs? Probably, you know, problem solving and culture. That, that's what I like the most about, you know, advertising sales. Mm-hmm. But anyone who's been in advertising sales will tell you, or any sort of sales, but I think it's you know, selling advertising in New York City after a while gets to be kind of a grind. Mm-hmm. And I know that I wanted something a little bit more, you know, incorporating more marketing and strategy. 
Yeah. And I know that I had started off like wanting to work in an ad agency. So I thought I'm either going to get my MBA so I can go work in an ad agency or maybe I can be, you know, a product or a brand manager. And so by the fall of summer of the fall of 91, I start or the fall of 92, I started um, exploring different MBA programs that I might go to and taking courses to get ready for the GMAT. Mm-hmm. Knowing that I wanted to, you know, I want to be in management. I don't, I don't know if I want to be in any kind of sales after just three and a half years in New York City. It was a good experience, but, you know, I'm kind of over it. You know, if this is the business world, I'm, you know, not excited anymore and uh, i need to you know educate myself so i can you know move up the the food chain mm-hmm. so the long and the short of it i ended up uh, getting accepted to american university in washington dc where i ended up going from uh, 92 to 94. okay with a focus in marketing gotcha and did um were you still working during the time or were you a student full-time or? No, I went full-time student, yeah. although I did get a summer internship. What was this company called? It was a satellite learning company. Satellite learning. Remember that? Vaguely. Distance yeah. learning. It was pretty like widespread, commercially you know, viable, mainstream internet. But it was a company out of Texas. I can't believe I'm forgetting their their name, but that's what I did over the summer of '93. You know, while I was like studying and marketing, and you know, if you got an MBA in marketing these days, it would be a lot different because there was still, you know, that was kind of an old school marketing degree because the uh, yeah, the internet was just getting cranked up, yeah, right? Exactly. AOL was still fairly green. It wasn't widespread. You certainly didn't have broadband access in your home. It was dial up and it was pretty limited, no mobile. Yeah, but that that got me interested in, as I mentioned, either working for an ad agency as an account manager or a product or you know, a brand manager. Mm-hmm. And speaking of networking, since you want the kids to like reach out to people they know or even like cold call people they don't know just to have informational interviews either in person or zoom or you know yeah. on the cell phone is that I, I i um did a lot of networking and it was actually a personal connection that got me into an ad agency that i worked for in raleigh north carolina for almost two years before I came to Atlanta, I worked for an agency called Howard Merrill and Partners, and I was an assistant account executive and then an account executive executive on Southern National Bank, mm-hmm. which eventually became BB and T. Yeah, yeah, the banks had a lot of consolidation over the last twenty or thirty years, for sure. Yeah, I mean, so go ahead and join. No, I was gonna say so. So coming out of uh, graduate school. Um, did you were there were there any opportunities that that presented themselves that you didn't realize would be um, an option before you went in? Well, I know in, in, in graduate school, I got 
I've got interested in the whole idea of interactive media. Mm-hmm. What is that term? All media now is interactive. But that, yeah. when I thought of interactive media, I would think about the, um, the preview channel. And I actually had a very successful friend. I forget the name of his company, but he's, um, he had one of those, he was a major system operator. He's been in, in Forbes. It's, you know, Lawrence Flynn. Mm-hmm. I, had, I had talked to him and years earlier, right when I started working at Fairchild Publications, he called me like a week after I started working and wanted me to be his assistant, but I'd already taken a job and had an apartment with friends in New York. Mm-hmm. That probably would have been a pretty good move. You know, working for one of those, you know, major cable operators. He sold out a couple years later. Like he, I think he created the preview channel. I don't know if you remember that. I do. Yeah. yeah. And then he lives lives in Hope Sound. He's been there for a long time. But yeah, so I started talking about interactive media and, and technology towards the end of graduate school. Mm-hmm. But just the way things fleshed out, I, I interviewed at ad agencies, a couple different, you know, ad agencies in Atlanta. And I interviewed for, you know, like product or brand, you know, management type positions at consumer product companies. But the way it turned out with timing, the opportunity at the ad agency was just available. And I, and I didn't have like a, a, a long runway to not be, you know, to look for six to 12 months for the perfect job. Mm-hmm. But those, those days of not being as adroit, you know, not being as experienced, mm-hmm. that's something that paved the way where later on down the road, I got more specific and did more research and got a lot more confident about what I wanted. And yeah. It was a lot easier, but I think your listeners should know that even if you have, if you know a lot of fancy people that are well connected, it doesn't really matter unless you can bring value to the table. Yeah, you know, you can know them, but there's a big jump between knowing them and being able to, you know, fit in their organization. Yeah, and I didn't quite have that with with a lot of people that I knew, you know, right out of college because I just didn't have real world experience. Yeah. I had a little more real world experience after graduate school, but I ended up taking that job at the agency because it was, you know, convenient and it popped up when I needed it. If I had more time, and certainly if I know what I knew now and had the confidence I have now, I probably would have made another decision. But, you know, that happens. And the fact that I did struggle helped me, you know, get a lot better. Mm-hmm. So I just would want you know, the kids to know you can't expect, even with a great education, getting into UNC Chapel Hill and knowing people, you still have to really, have, you know, be able to shine, you know, in the moment where people are making, you know, judgments and are in a position to either hire you or recommend you to somebody. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's, uh, you, you're hired based on, you know, the value you bring to the organization. I think it's a little different when you're maybe an intern or, you know, if you are, um, even just having a conversation, I know that there's lots of uh, experienced, you know, senior executives that would be willing to have a conversation. But you know, when it comes to actually hiring, you've got to be able to match up with what 
what the company is looking for and, and the value that you can bring to it. So tell me a little bit about your, um, your path from, you know, account executive to like business development. I know that spanned a couple of companies, but just tell me about your thoughts going through that. Yeah. So I was not happy at that ad agency and had started to talk to companies in Atlanta. My brother was in Atlanta. He married somebody from Atlanta. And so I was like, you know, I, I wanted to do, you know, marketing, you know, be a, a product or, a, you know, a brand manager. That's kind of my first choice. And that didn't pan out in time, you know, to coincide with my graduation from business school. And here I am almost two years into working in this ad agency. It wasn't really a perfect fit for my, for my skill set. And I ended up getting a job offer from Turner Home Video. I don't know if you remember them, but it was after Turner had, uh, I guess, Time Warner was going to buy them. Uh-huh. And I had an offer. It was at the same salary as, as I was making in Raleigh at the ad agency. And I was a little worried. Well, if Time Warner bought them once they you know, completely integrate them within operations, there's a good chance that, you know, I might get being one of the recent people hired the first to let go. So mm-hmm. I didn't take that opportunity, but in the spring of 96, right when the Olympics were firing up, I just made the move to Atlanta and I'd had the sales experience from advertising I had the account executive experience from working at that agency, Howard Mirror Partners, and then I merged the two when I met this guy named Phil Scott, who had a graphic design firm called Creative R&D. And I got that job the same way I got any other job, like networking with friends of friends. And I forgot the name of the woman. I know her first name. It may have been Morgan, but she had something called the list it was a database it was software of you know creative buyers and so like design firms and paper companies and photographers and anyone that was involved in creating media assets would 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 buy her database morgan somebody she's a funny woman um tall brunette woman with kind of a dark sense of humor she, I don't know who introduced me to her, maybe somebody from the ad agency community in Atlanta, but I ended up working for this graphic design firm that did most of their work for technology companies in Atlanta. So software companies and, you know, ERP type solutions, mm-hmm. whatever that guy brought, you know, that technology maven, is it Richard Brock? I can't remember. It would be like in his, I think, 70s now, but it was a lot of people that, you, that, that you've heard of. But we mm-hmm. did a, a, annual reports and collateral for you know, non-technology companies, but that was sales and it was account management. And I got into you know, copywriting, you know, write, you know, writing you know, the brochures. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, this is sort of what I was thinking about way back in college. It's combining a a bunch of different things. It's not the grind of ad sales. You know, we're selling services and then creating something. It's commission. You know, it's not stodgy, you know, bank 
checking products and IRAs and stuff. Yeah. That was never, those people at Howard Merrill and Partners, they did amazing strategic work. They were very bright. I was definitely not punching in their weight class, you know, right out of graduate school. Yeah. But I got to work for a very small company, a boutique where I, I was a real asset and brought a lot to the table. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, you know, as much swimming against the tide because that ad agency in Raleigh, there was some heavy hitters that were, you know, not necessarily salespeople, but very analytical. Let's just say they were playing chess. And at that stage of my career, I was playing checkers. So where, where I ended up in Atlanta, you know, merging everything that I was, you know, really good at into one and then getting the exposure to technology kind of led me to where I am today. That's actually interesting because it's insightful that, look, you make an honest assessment of where you are, know where you want to go, and then figure out the best way to get there. And if it's not at a, a bigger company, agency, whatever, um, either you're not providing, you know, the value to the company and, and they're not giving you training or opportunities to learn, grow and succeed then you need to really, you know, make the right decision for yourself in order to keep moving forward, right? Yeah, it, it, it really worked out well. And um, so by getting really, in some cases, in the weeds with production details, you know, doing brochures and flyers, one of the companies we worked for was Dickens Data Systems. And I guess they were an AS 400, you know, value added reseller. Mm -hmm. And so that got me, you know, interested in technology. And again, the networking thing, a buddy of mine from Jacksonville, Florida, where I lived from 71 to 79 and Tom Watson was like a research director at this software company called Jameson Research, and it was for the commercial real estate industry. They're now CoStar. I'm sure you've heard of CoStar. It's a, yeah. It's yeah. a public company. But he, he said, look, you know, we have a database here, and it's for real estate. It's for tenant reps to, to locate space for their, their clients, and it's for developers and it's for property managers and it's just got all this granular data but it's also since it's so specific it's a great database for various vendors like furniture companies and telecom and various various organizations that either sell it into the commercial real estate um, market um, and or you know market services that are triggered by movement within real estate and we're trying to you know really build that out so he got me over there and i was you know mainly in sales and there was account management too there was even advertising sales within their software platform so i went over there i guess it was almost two years and I was selling a software product. And then when CoStar bought them, it became hosted, you know, software as a service. Mm -hmm. So that, that really dovetailed nicely into where 
you know, the, the whole world is going now to software as a service, but I was selling, you know, software as a service to commercial real estate companies in Atlanta. And I really enjoyed it, but where Jameson was a smaller company, they were now part of a much you know, larger public company. And, you know, when you're selling for a public company, you have to keep you know, Wall Street happy. Yeah. And there's just big company rules yeah. and, you know, limitations that I wasn't, you know, as crazy about. And it changed a lot after CoStar bought them. So I was in, you know, in, in, in the mood to take a little risk. And I was one of um, the, the silly folks who got lured over to realestate.com. I don't know if you heard about that, but it was a pretty horrendous bomb. Yeah. Realestate.com. I've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. It was, they, they were not making money. It was like one of those dot bombs where they had a bunch of fresh flowers, ping pong uh, tables, massages, and yeah. like no revenue. All the fun leading up to March of 2000, right? Yeah. And so I worked at realestate.com, but, you know, I didn't have any, any, any risk in my life. Didn't have, um, you know, wife or kids and was able to take a chance. And then when that didn't work out, again, through networking, I networked to get that job and I networked with somebody else that I knew to get a job at this company called Thinkologies. Thinkologies? Joey Ryman, who I think is a very impressive individual, he sold his company, Bright House, to Boston Consulting. Mm. So anyway, Thinkologies was a, it was a tool for measuring employee and, and client satisfaction and it, it, it wasn't completely fleshed out. They did have customers and they had some some big investors, but it, it would technically also be a dot bomb. Mm-hmm. But I ended up using that experience to get you know another job. Hopefully, I'm not getting too far ahead because the next job I mentioned is the one right before I met you. Okay. Yeah, you and I met when when you were a digital agent, right? Exactly. Yep. So before I met uh, met you at Digital Agent, I went to one more big company, which is a subsidiary of Viacom, and and it, it fits in that it's technology, it's that interactive you know media theme, but it was a company called Metro Networks that had the ten to fifteen second. Uh, sponsorships within traffic updates on terrestrial radio. Oh, and it was a very cool product. But so that incorporated everything that I'd done before, you know, advertising, sales, account management. There was some copywriting involved where they needed help for their, you know, the uh, the sponsorship, you know, messages. Mm-hmm. But everyone knows we have terrible traffic in Atlanta. And Metro Networks had all the major stations. I think they merged with a clear channel product called Total Traffic. Okay. So that, that's the idea. And, and I don't really listen 
to terrestrial radio, so I don't know. Nobody does. <laughs> yeah, but they would have the, the um, sponsorship messages within the traffic updates. So there was tons of traffic updates because there's tons of traffic. And, you know, Home Depot or whomever, could, the kind of companies that would want like broad reach across expensive billboards mm-hmm. would also use Metro Networks. So I worked there for almost two years. And then I met somebody again, the networking theme in a networking group, Stephen Granger, who got me over to Digital Agent where I met you. So mm-hmm. I pretty much have networked my butt off. You know, friends of friends or asking friends if I can talk to their friends or go to a networking group. I mean, that's been the big theme is leveraging friends who will introduce you to other people. Yeah. And so I'd be curious to hear your thoughts, because I know as I've changed jobs, one, you know, my parents, especially my dad was like, you get in with a big company, you stay there forever. They take care of you. And it's, you know, that was the generation where that was the reality. But, you know, when you get to a point where either you're not growing at the right rate that you want to, or you're not getting exposure to different things that you're going to learn from, or you're not learning anything more. That's, that was basically my, my situation at the Olympics was I, I had done, you know, three or four of these ramping up to the Olympics. And it was the same routine each time. I wasn't growing professionally or even just from a curiosity and creative perspective. There wasn't anything new that was going on. So sometimes you do have to change. And, you know, changing jobs is not necessarily a bad thing, certainly in today's world. But, you know, it has to be for the right reasons and the right opportunities. It sounds like you were able to, you know, through networking, learn about new opportunities, assess where you were, and then make an educated decision to say, do I, do I move on to this new opportunity or can I continue to grow, you know, where I'm at now? Oh, no doubt. You know, you just gave me a great idea. So back in the day, you know, when you, when you and I were, you know, coming up, it wasn't a great idea to, to change companies. Like your dad said, stay at the same company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But so I remember being a little self-conscious about wow you know work for a couple companies that you know they um you know the the dot bombs and i was at a few of these entities that you know it's a bigger company i didn't like the way the new owner ran it or the opportunity shifted so these days it's expected that people will move around you know a lot more and so i would encourage the youngsters listening to this say hey I mean, I can't encourage them. They're going to do it anyway. I mean, there's been a sea change on that topic, but it wasn't as expected, you know, when I was making those changes. But when I met you at Digital Agent, I ended up staying at that company for 11 and a half years. Yeah. Now, I like the company. When I went there, I'm like, all right, this is voice over IP. They eventually got into managed IT, but they're real bread and butter, their superpower was very carefully, you know, white glove managed void. But I wanted to learn a new industry. I wouldn't have just been in, you know, selling dial tone, you know, because I talked to a couple of those companies in New York in the late 80s. I'm like, I just, I think that's, that's not me. It's sort of like the copier guys. It's, it seems a little used car, a little like the Pitney Bowes mail machines or right, right. papers, you know, not to be a snob. But when I went there, it was something that merged, you know, the internet with telephony and the owner of that company, you know, really great guy, Howard Hunter, 
said, look, there's a lot of these companies out there, small and mid-sized businesses, they have um, PBS, you know, phone systems, and they're some last for a long time, but basically, you know, five to 10 years, and, you know, it's like a car, it depreciates. You know, with VoIP, they can, you know, rent the, the capacity and the auto attendant and, you know, the call treatment, the call center, the, you know, voicemail to email, they can rent it. And it, it was a really good pitch. And a lot of times they make new decisions, you know, when they switch offices. So rewind back to Jameson, which is now CoStar, we got their database, you know, the vendor database that I used to sell, mm-hmm. telecom companies and furniture vendors, we use that. And then a bunch of networking that I employed to get um, to get opportunities. But yeah, that definitely led to where I am now. And I, I moved to Providence because I wanted to get much more uh, intentional about managed IT. And I wanted to call on larger companies. And I really felt like VoIP was the race to zero. And it was really hot in 2003, but by I'm sure before I made the move to Providence, it had become you know a commodity. But I was just pretty much done by the end of 2014, and I'd, I'd met Hamish Davidson in early 2013, and he'd said, you know, we go after small and mid-sized businesses. You know, we don't take everybody. You know, we have standards and best practices, and you know, there's a whole client journey where we want to eventually take them where everything's in the cloud and there's cybersecurity benefits and compliance and he really the way he runs Provident and planned it it's a lot like a big company with all the cool systems that they have in place but it's still you know it's it's 30 people it's privately held and he gives me a lot of room for you know, career growth. So I went from general sales and marketing and wearing probably way too many hats where he let me try a bunch of different things. Mm-hmm. That was a nice segue into, you know, what I'm doing now. But my experience when I met him was perfect. What he said, he said specifically at the time, I was complaining about how medical practices are really difficult IT clients because you could never you know, talk to the decision maker and sorry, doctors, a lot of these doctors have big egos and they're mean to their staff and their staff can't explain the technology to the doctor and they won't follow standards and they won't pay your fees. And Hamish said something to the effect at the time, we've changed a little bit, but like we don't call on medical practices because they really don't know what they're doing. I'm like, when can I interview with you? (laughs) And I've been with him for six years. Yeah, so, end, end of last month, I've been with Provident for six years. That's great. Yeah, and I plan on staying. That's great. I mean, it gives you, you know, the freedom to do some things that you've you wanted to do. I'm, I'm curious a little bit about what, what Provident does, because I know you've got managed IT services, which, you know, I, I understand. And, you know, other companies do that. You know, there's cloud services, there's security services um, and professional services. Um, how do you distinguish yourself? Because I know cybersecurity is a big a big deal right now and will continue to be right so how do you are you still focused on the small to medium markets how do you how do you adjust with other competitors in the marketplace well so we really position ourselves you know we don't have a catchy little phrase like you know 
think differently or just do it. You know, like you know, like the bigger consumer brands. Mm-hmm. We're, we're a lot like a money management firm or, you know, a, a CPA or commercial real estate, you know, brokerage firm you know, selling professional services. So where we really stand out is being a strategy first organization, being one where there's a proven process that's based on standards and best practices to create really quiet IT systems that don't require a lot of manual intervention, and then only onboarding a maximum of two clients per month so we can do really thorough onboarding, which creates operating leverage for for years to come. I mean, our, our general tagline right now is driving business through technology, which we do pretty well in organic search. But I wouldn't say right now that I have like a grabber that but people go, wow, you know, that's that's like what Nike came up with or that's, you know, similar to, you know, Apple, think differently. Mm-hmm. A lot of our business comes through making a really good impression when, when, when somebody finds us online and we chat with them and they can tell that we're not just trying to sell our wares and we're trying to solve problems and listen very very carefully we get a lot of referral business from people that have worked with us in the past but since it's in process now part of the content marketing that i'm doing now with uh with all this you know blog writing we're also you know changing our website format and it's yet to be announced maybe the next time you have me on your show i'll have that little grabber because it's not ready to share on a, a podcast, but we're doing the, uh, the the story brand format, which I'll shoot you some info on that. It's pretty interesting. And with that, I'll probably have a more impressive positioning statement of you know how we're different than others, because I'm just not uh, in bragging mode right now. <laughs> frankly, we're just, we're not there. Yeah. We don't have that grabber yet. So it's more... You know, our the way we conduct ourselves and have discernment, but it's not it's not productized for a soundbite. Gotcha. Well, we'll definitely have a follow up one. Um, so, how has uh, this year's you know struggles twenty twenty has been you know tough on companies and individuals you know on a number of different levels? How has COVID changed what you're doing with Provident? It's um. It was an easy pivot to work from home for us because that's really what we sell. You know, you know, one of the things that we're floating out there, and, and I believe this, is that you know our clients deserve IT without limits, and anything that we can do to remove obstacles will enable them to grow and perform. And ways that we simplify unifying devices and clouds and users that are you know all over the globe so they can 
reach uh, the, the applications that they need to reach at the right time while keeping all the wrong people out. That's really what we do. And that's what our clients have now. So for the most part, it was a fairly easy pivot for our clients to, to work remotely. And there, there wasn't a whole you know, lot of you know, fallout. Some of our clients cut back a few services to sort of you know, you know, trim the fat and you know, lower their costs, but we just didn't do blanket you know, reductions of everybody's price because there's a real formula that goes into it. And that's another thing that comes out, I think, when we're attracting new customers is we'll show you our pricing formula and where it comes from. And um, if people don't think that we can solve their problems and, you know, that that price, you know, doesn't suit their appetite, you know, that's totally cool. You know, we get that, you know, out in the open, but this whole pivot to work from home, I don't know if we were talking about this at the beginning of the call before you started recording, but we realized from Zoom and Microsoft Teams where we've taken a real uh, you know, shine to Teams and then moving people to public cloud, speaking of your employer, mm -hmm. is that we can get a lot more work done. And just the fact that I'm not spending 80 minutes a day going back and forth to work and I could be you know, developing content and then coming up with our marketing grabber that I'll hit you with next time that's still in development, is that all these great things can be done. We're not necessarily tethered to physical space. I am sure that our, our real estate will, that footprint is probably going to you know, get a lot you know, smaller over the years. And I also think with this big migration to public cloud and the role of the MSP changing, that we could have clients in different geographies and we could also have employees in different geographies. I think with the big shift to public cloud for MSPs that want to take their clients along you know, for the ride, the ones that are going to be next generation and really be thought leaders on cloud, which I think we really are. Mm -hmm. is that maybe the pricing will come down, you know, the services will change a little bit because maybe the pricing won't be, have to take into account like on-site visits and, and expenses, you know, to, to, to touch, you know, physical assets, which is kind of the old world. But I see a lot of expansion, possibility, and then pulling in all kinds of talent from you know around the country as we grow and even maybe a little you know buying some other you know msps you know, down the road ones that have you know clients that have you know operating maturity that would lend itself to where we're going but the pandemic definitely accelerated that yeah unfortunately with you know with very little blowback i think when we spoke a couple months ago i mentioned we had some retail oriented clients that weren't a perfect fit for fixed fee, you know, IT anyway, you know, because if you charge somebody a fixed fee and they don't really follow your wise counsel and they're not as crazy about, you know, standards and then migrating workloads to the cloud, you know, if they're kind of stuck in that, you know, you need to be on site, you know, I don't want to replace this till it fails mode. Mm -hmm. It augurs well for everybody just to maybe not have that 
relationship anymore. So there was a little, you know, right sizing there, but we've ended up picking up new accounts that found us online and liked our approach, you know, consultative strategy first, not pushing anything and then referrals. So I think we've added in the past six months, I think we've added like six to eight new accounts. Wow. Which is pretty good. I mean, you know, we're, we're a boutique. I mean, we're not, you know, owned by a Japanese copier company. You know, we're not a public company selling managed IT. And we're making our numbers. And, you know, there were minimal employee, um, minimal employee impact. There's like maybe one person that was hired a week before things started locking down. I mean, it, it didn't make the cut, but. Yeah, and we're, hi- and we're hiring too. We did that just on the Zoom, not the Zoom, the Teams call. Got to see a, a, a new face the other day. That was encouraging. <laughs> well, it's some seismic shifts happening this year, and and uh, you know, in traditional modes of of work, you know, we were talking earlier about uh, just some of the benefits of being remote. You know, full time. It's it's given you the opportunity to certainly time shift your day, um, work to the hours where you're most productive and uh, it's not just, Hey, you know, uh, Providine's going through this or AWS is going through this. It's everybody's going through it, you know, school, work, um, everything, travel, all of that. And so we're all trying to figure out what's that right balance look like. And I imagine, you know, we'll continue to see, you know, migration to cloud services, you know, which then fuels security concerns and um, you know, all the other aspects about remote work and, um, It'll be interesting to see how we we continue this into 21. Now, I'm really excited about it. I am, you know, you know told, you know, Hamish Davidson, the owner of Provident, how glad I was that we're, you know, engaged with HubSpot and Impact. And, you know, we're, we're redoing our website and our messaging with a, you know, story brand format. The story brand format basically puts the the visitor or the prospect positions them as the hero mm-hmm. and then Provident as a guide, which is why I didn't have a whole lot of stuff to brag about because we're in this transition stage where you don't brag. We don't really say this is you know our sweet spot. I mean, I can tell you strategy and you know being dedicated to the cloud pivot and all that stuff but the, where we're going it's it's going to make us sound a lot less like a superhero because the idea is to make the people that want to do business with us the hero so i haven't quite figured out a way to to, to, to bust that out on a podcast so it's <laughs> i've got the thoughts you know yeah the juice uh, is flowing yeah for sure man i can't wait to hear how uh how things play out in the next six to twelve months for you so one, one more question for you. What advice would you give to a younger you? So that's a really good question. You know, m- maybe to be more patient, to be more patient, because I really enjoy writing. And I remember a friend of mine at UNC Chapel Hill, she was in the journalism school and while I don't see myself as a pundit or a journalist, I think that skill set would have been 
very valuable for what I'm doing now. And it may have had me doing what I'm doing now sooner. Mm -hmm. This is the patience part. And it's something that I've had to pick up as an adult to be in the journalism program at UNC Chapel Hill. And I'm embarrassed to tell you this, but the kids need to hear this because I know sometimes the kids want immediate gratification. But in 1985, at least the spring of 85, when this friend of mine told me, well, if you want to get in the journalism program, there's this exam that you have to take. You know, I don't remember if it was grammar. It was something that if I had any patience, I'd be like, I'm going to do that. But I'm like, oh, I don't want to do that. I mean, how? Maybe not be lazy. Let me add that for the advice to the kids. Don't be lazy and be patient. But I, was, I don't know why. Because I was lazy and I was not being patient. So there's two bits of advice there. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I ask this question to all of my guests. And it is always interesting to hear you know, what people think about. Um, but there's also, you know, there's a process that we go through and some of the challenges and some of the things that, you know, maybe didn't go like you expected also build, you know, this, you know, experience, um, as you bring into your, you know, middle careers. And, um, sometimes it's, it's hard to really go back and say, oh, I wish I would have done this differently. But, um, you know, I think it's, it's a different generation where there's so much more information available now. Yeah. Um, and it's always great to hear just, some. Um, some feedback from us more experienced uh, workers to uh, to convey to the younger audience. So, Jed, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. It was great catching up with you. It was great hearing about your journey and um, you know just some of the the decision points you had to make and and how you've adjusted your career to tie into your experiences and your interests and and have fun with it along the way. Yeah, well, it's it's my pleasure and certainly any of your listeners who want to contact me on, on LinkedIn, if they want to hit me up with some ideas or, um, you know, follow some of my, you know, blogs, which are getting, you know, fired up as part of content marketing, you know, I definitely, you know, can make some introductions and give some ideas. And I, and I know a lot of people and, um, I'm a little opinionated, so I'll warn them in advance. They, they might get some unsolicited advice. That'd be great. Uh, I'll put the links into the podcast so people can find you. And uh, thanks again, Jay. We'll definitely have to do this again in 21. I look forward to it, man. Thanks again for including me. I hope you have a great weekend and a happy Thanksgiving. Thanks. You too, man. Thanks. Thanks, brother. Bye-bye. All right.